new series we're going to open up here called the or seven laws of spiritual growth. I want to be careful how I word that. It's not the seven laws because I am in no ways claiming to have a complete list here. Uh, These are just seven things I think will be a help to us as we look towards spiritual growth. It's not comprehensive, but I think it'll be helpful. Uh, these are just some laws that if we live by, it will do us. Uh, it will it'll help us to grow in the Lord and grow in spiritual maturity. Uh, tonight, I want to review a very basic truth, and it's going to be one of those things that you'll hear and say, "Well, I knew that. I, re- I know." That. And this really, none of these things are new uh, to us. In fact, you might hear tonight's law and say that is more a lesson for children's church than it is for us wizened adults, but it is something I believe we need to hear on a regular basis and we definitely need to realize on a regular basis and need reminding often. So I'm not going to give you all seven laws tonight, but I will tell you this, the seven laws end or begin and end with God because that is the way that only way we'll ever see spiritual growth is with the Lord involved in our life. This whole book is about God, it's about our relationship with Him, and how it affects us. So the chief purpose of man, really, is to glorify God. That is that we are made for God. We ought to have a consuming desire to know God in our Christian life. Paul said in Philippians 3.10, that I may know Him and the power of His resurrection and the fellowship of His sufferings being made conformable unto His death. We ought to live a life of service to God. Colossians 3.23, whatsoever you do, do it heartily, even as unto the Lord. In uh, Matthew twenty-two thirty-seven, uh, it tells us about how we ought to have an intense love for God. Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, with all thy mind. So where does the spiritual life begin? I want to start tonight with this thought. This is the first law. This is going to be deep, okay? It's going to be really uh, uh, a, a, a truth that's just going to shock you. But here it is. God is God. And we are not. That's your first law that we're going to talk about tonight. God is God and you are not. I am not. Nothing really is more basic than that. And yet nothing really is more needed for us as we grow spiritually. All spiritual reality, friends, begins with this truth. God is God and we are not. Yet it's the one we really struggle with. You say, I don't struggle with that. I know who God is. I know who I am. But really, since the beginning of mankind... This has been our desire, and this has been our struggle. Let's go there, if you can, to Genesis chapter 3. Let's read at verse number 1. Now the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said unto the woman, Yea, hath God said, Ye shall not eat of every tree of the garden. And the woman said unto the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, Ye shall not eat of it, neither shall ye touch it, lest ye die. And the serpent said unto the woman, Ye shall not surely die. For God doth know that in the day ye eat thereof, then your eyes shall be opened, and ye shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. Father, I pray you'd help us this evening as we look at this very fundamental truth. Sink it into our hearts in Jesus' name. Amen. Ye shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. Sin did not begin on earth. Do you know that? Sin began in heaven. Uh, The first sin in the universe we find in Isaiah chapter 14 It is when Satan, or Lucifer then, forgot who God was and who he was. He decided, I will be God. I will be like the Most High. In Isaiah 14, 13, he says, For thou hast said in thine heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. 
I also will sit on the mount of the congregation in the sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the most high. There's five I wills in there of Lucifer. And when the created tries to become the creator and like the most high, he will be subject to very severe judgment from God as he was and as it should be. When we, it all began here when Lucifer wanted to be God. Verse 14, I will ascend the heights of the heavens. I will be like the most high. <clears throat> now the three chapters uh, in the, from the very beginning of the Bible, in the third chapter that we just read, we see the serpent appears for the first time. It's interesting that three chapters in in the Bible, he appears for the first time. Three chapters from the end of the Bible, he appears for the last time. But all in between there, we have to deal with Satan. And as we deal with him even in our life, uh, this idea of his uh, wanting to be like God and then us as well. Uh, what does he bring to the first temptation to mankind? He, The first people, the first temptation... The very first time that Satan comes, this ought to be really good. What does the first temptation toward the first human being, what does it consist of? Ye shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. Since that day, there has been a constant struggle for us to be our own gods. It was God's intention here as he created woman out of Adam's, uh, he didn't create him out of his head, he created him out of his side. She was to be his help meet. And so it was his intention though that uh, Adam would be, she was created second, not first. Adam was created first. Uh, by the way, do you know why Adam was created first? All right. God did not want advice on how to make Adam, so he created him. All right. Eve, Eve was created second. Uh, Adam was created first. She was not made for headship. Adam was made for headship. The inner center of her rule was not her head, but her heart. The inner center of Adam on, uh, to made to rule was the uh, intellect. And Satan twisted this order that God had put forth. He began the temptation with Eve, putting her in the place of headship. He engaged her in an intellectual discussion concerning right and wrong. Not only that, he brought her to the level of not only subverting her, her husband, but also subverting God himself. Ye shall be as gods. Satan went through three stages in this temptation. He first cast doubt, hath God said. Then he cast uh, any flat out, uh, brought denial, uh, ye shall not surely die. And then he brings delusion, ye shall be as gods. Now, the word gods in that verse, even though it's a little g as it is meant to be, uh, is translated from the word Elohim. And you know that is a word for God himself. And so, you shall be like God himself. That's what the serpent told Eve. He was putting into Eve's mind the same thought that had once entered into his mind. The one that transformed him from the anointed cherub to the devil. Eve believed that eating this forbidden fruit would open her eyes to all kinds of wisdom. She threw away her innocence for conscience. It was a terrible bargain, and it still is. K.A. Hill, he said this, I believe we are our own gods and our own devils. Good and evil doesn't exist out there in the world. It exists in each and every one of us. Now that's the attitude of so many, and even though rightly so, we cringe when we hear that statement. Uh, we should cringe when we hear it, uh, that, that we are our own gods. But every time we doubt God, every time we go against God's commandments, we live that statement. I am my own God. I'm going to do what I want to do. Do you remember when Aaron, the high priest of Israel, uh, when Moses was up on the mountain receiving the Ten Commandments, and the children of Israel getting impatient because he had been gone so long, and they said, make us a 
God. And they put a golden calf, put all their gold in, and later they said, out jumped this calf. I love that description. Talk about a, a cheap excuse you get. Uh, we just put our gold in this fire and a calf jumped out and we started to worship. But what did they say? Make us a God. And so Aaron fashioned a God for them to worship. Uh, they wanted to replace Almighty God with a God of their own. And now we don't do that today. We, we don't fashion idols and we don't worship and bow down to things made of stone and metal and even precious metal. We don't do that. But we often do subvert ourselves in God's place. Every time we do our own, go our own way, as it talks about in Isaiah, versus going God's way, we're saying in a little way, I am God, He is not. We're putting ourselves in His place. Every time we doubt God and we worry, in fact, I forget who made the statement, but worry is a mild form of atheism. And it really is. When we worry, we're saying, I uh, am, am worrying about something that I am trying to control, and I'm putting myself in the place of God. The truth is, whether or we believe it or not, God is in charge of all things. Even when it looks like He is not ruling, He is ruling. When chaos appears, He is in charge of the chaos. When things start falling apart, He's still in charge even amidst the falling apart of those things. We call this, in the Bible, the sovereignty of God. You find it on every page throughout your Bible. The word sovereign means supreme leader. And God's sovereignty means He is calling the shots in the universe. He is in charge of all things. Proverbs chapter 24, verse 1, the Bible says the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and they that dwell therein. That's what's meant by the statement, He is God and we are not. Now we need to stop living like we are God because we are not. He is God and we are not. He is the creator. We are the creatures. This is the, truly, really is the most fundamental principle of the spiritual life. Until we understand this and fully grasp it uh, and submit to it, nothing in our work life will work right if we don't accept the fact that He is God and we are not. Every mistake you've ever made, every sin that you've ever committed has come from forgetting who's God and forgetting who's not. He is God and we are not. Let's look first of all at God's freedom. We talk a lot about freedom. Usually it's our freedom. And, and of course, our personal freedom means a lot to us. We're in a nation... Uh, that, uh, well, once was more free than it is, but still is more free than most. Uh, we, our freedom means a lot to us, but really, God's freedom is the only true freedom in the universe. Every other freedom is a derivative from His freedom in one way or another. So what do I mean by God's freedom? Well, let me give you a few here. And again, this, these aren't necessarily the most pleasant truths for us to consider, but we need to grasp them from Scripture. He is absolutely free to do whatever he wants to do. Why? Because he is God, and we are not. He's free to do whatever he wants to do. Uh, when he wanted to create a universe, he said the word, and it happened. Uh, by his word, it came forth. Uh, he is truly free in the absolute sense of the term. When he presented himself to Moses, uh, what did he say? Moses asked, who shall I say that sent me? Tell him, I am that I am sent you. You are? Yes. You are this? Yes. He just, I am, that covers everything, doesn't it? I am that I am. He is eternal. He is self-existent. He is entirely self-sufficient. He exists entirely apart from the universe He created. He is not bound by time and space. He is God. We are not. It helps. It ought to help our spiritual growth if we remember that. Number two, He has the right to deal with us in any way He chooses. He has that freedom. God is not under no obligation to create you 
or me or anyone else. He is under no obligation to keep us alive, even one more second from right now. We had, it would help us in our humility and in our spiritual life if we recognize the fact that God does not owe me anything at all. Everything we have is a, is a testament to His grace and to His mercy. He doesn't owe us anything. In short, uh, no one has a claim on God. He is under no compulsion to save a single member of the human race. He can do what He wants with any of us, and no one can successfully second-guess Him. Have you ever tried? It doesn't work. You can't second-guess God. Job 23.13 But He is in one mind, and who can turn Him? And what his soul desireth, even that he doeth. Job understood there he cannot demand anything from God. In and of himself, he has no power to change his awful circumstance, his condition. He can't even demand a hearing to plead his case uh, before God. God does what he wants, and Job is powerless to oppose him. Why? God is God, and Job is not. He finally came about to recognize that in throughout the book of Job. Number three, God's freedom. God is free to treat me in the way, any way he wants. He does not have to treat me the way he treats my next door neighbor. This is hard for some folks. It was hard for the psalmist as he looked around and saw how other people were treated. God blesses so-and-so, then I think I deserve the same thing. I'm just as good as so-and-so is. And they get the good things to happen to them. Why shouldn't I have good things to happen to me? But God does not work that way. And, And again, these are hard facts for us to face. But God can save your neighbor from cancer but not your mate from cancer. And that's the way God is. We don't always understand it. And I'm not trying to make light of it at all, but we better remember He's the one that's in control. Envying your neighbor because of what he has and what you do not have is a waste of time because God deals with us as individuals, not as groups. He might do for you exactly what He's done for someone else. He might do much more for you or much less for you. He might do something entirely different. Why? Because God is God and I am not. I can't make those decisions. He can deal with me any way he wants. Number four, he does not have to treat me today the way he treated me yesterday. Now, please understand this statement. God's character does not change. We know he is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He is always gracious, always loving, always holy, and always just. His ways are always perfect. However, does not mean that what happened to me yesterday is a guarantee of what will happen to me tomorrow. God's character and His love for me and for you never changes. But how that grace and that love is expressed fluctuates for us widely throughout our life. One day, I might receive a significant answer to prayer. The next day, I may be in the valley of suffering, waiting on the Lord to deliver me. But He is always God. He is always good, He is always gracious, and it does not depend on my situation. Because why? He is God, and I am not. It's a kind of a hard thing for our human pride to accept, isn't it? We really, we really would do well if we understood how minute our control is. I mean, we can eat healthy, you know, eat roots and sticks and all those things that they say are so good for you and avoid all the good things. Uh, I think it was Mark Twain, you know how to be healthy? You find everything that you like and you don't eat that. You find everything you don't like, and you do eat that. Uh, we can do all those things, but truly our life is in the hands of God. Why? Because He is God, and I am not. Last year, I think it was last year, I heard of, I, you know, you always hate when you start hearing of people your age that are dropping, 
And I heard about it. It was another pastor. He was exactly my age and uh, ran every day healthy. And it was out on his run one day. He was out jogging one, one day and middle of his run died of a heart attack. Why I don't run? Amen. Uh, terrible thing. But his, we're in the hands of God. He decides those. Number five, he can answer my prayer any way he chooses. Everyone who's prayed very much understands this truth. One night we fish and catch nothing. The next night our nets are filled to breaking. I may be in prison one night and an angel comes and sets me free. Or I may be in prison until I die there. Uh, a loved one with a disease may be spared by God. Or a loved one might die from that disease. One day I may sense God's wor spirit working powerfully through me. Another day I may feel like I'm on a treadmill getting nowhere. That's how it is for all of God's children. And only God knows how to deal with us and bring us to spiritual maturity. There are bright days and dark nights in our life, and both of them are from our God. The Bible says in Matthew 5.45, For he maketh his son to rise on the evil and on the good, and sendeth rain on the just and on the unjust. Sometimes it seems unfair. Sometimes I don't understand it. But I have to accept it. Why? Because he's God and I'm not. It's a fundamental truth in spiritual growth. Number six. This is a big one. He will not tolerate any rivals to his throne. This is one of the clearest themes in the Bible. There's only one God and he demands our exclusive worship. After reminding the Jews that he had delivered them from Egypt and all the things that he had done for them, God delivers to them his very first commandment. You know what the first commandment is? Thou shalt have no gods before me. Exodus chapter 20, verse 3. That's very clear. That means no gods, period, ever, end of statement. No gods before me. God is number one. There is no number two. There is just a number one. God is God and we are not. Number seven. He is not obligated to live up to my expectations. God does not bind himself to what I expect him to do. As a matter of fact, if you read your Bible, God continually surprised his people in the Bible. I mean, he often does what is the unexpected. He is the unexpected God. I mean, he does great things through people you'd never expect to see it. We're going to see next week. Uh, don't want to miss next week's message. I'm excited about it. We're going to talk about uh, Lefty and the Fat Man. You want to be here for Sunday morning. Uh, it's going to be a great, great discussion. But one of the, just the surprising things that God uses to accomplish his purposes. Uh, he cast Adam and Eve out of the garden. Then he made garments to cover their nakedness. He sent a flood, but he sent Noah a rainbow. He parted the Red Sea and gave manna daily, and then the sons of Korah were swallowed up by the earth. Jesus rebuked Peter, but then allowed him to see the transformation, transfiguration. Uh, he predicted Peter's betrayal, and then he restored him. Everything has happened just as God has promised, but little came about in the way that people expected. I mean, just look at, Christmas story, for one. That's not how anybody would have expected the Messiah to come to earth. He is the God of great surprises. And guess what? He doesn't have to explain himself to us, even though many of us have lots of questions sometimes. Amen? Don't you wish you could sit down on a one-on-one -on -one interview with God sometime? Why did this happen? Why did you do thus and such? Many of our questions would revolve around suffering, sadness, the death of a loved one, disappointment. You know, small things we can figure out on our own. Great losses are often hidden in the mind and heart of God. Deuteronomy 29, 29. The secret things belong to the Lord our God. His, he is far bigger than we can imagine. His presence fills the universe. 
He is more powerful than we can imagine. He is wiser than all the wisdom of the wisest men and women. His love is beyond human comprehension. His grace has no limits. His holiness is infinite. His ways are past finding out. He has no beginning and no end. He created all things and all things exist by His power. He has no peers. No one gives Him advice. He is perfect in all His perfections. He is God and we are not. And we need to accept that. It's a hard, now it's easy sitting here Sunday night in church, Bibles open on our lap. It's a little harder when tragedy strikes. It's a little harder when disappointments hit us, when we don't know what tomorrow may bring for us. There's nothing that we have, not even our praise and worship, that adds who God is. He did not create us because of any lack in Himself. A.W. Tozer said this, Were every person on earth to become an atheist, it would not affect God in any way. The belief or disbelief of the human race does not change the reality of who God is. To believe in Him adds nothing to His perfection. To doubt Him takes nothing away from Him. And as we think on all this, we're eventually led to a very humbling truth for all of us to realize. God does not need me for anything. Thank God He uses me, but He doesn't need me to complete Him. Now, deep inside, the reason that hurts a little bit is deep inside, most of us want to feel that we're important and necessary. In fact, if you read the book, How to Win Friends and Influence People, it's a book I've read probably ten times. I read it every four years. Uh, and so it's something that I, I try to learn from that. It's a great book. But one of the things he teaches is that every person's main need, burning desire in their life is to feel important. We all want to feel important. We like to think that God must have needed us. That's why he created me. I mean, I can understand you guys he doesn't need. Me? I mean, he needs me. He made me. I mean, I'm special, right? That's how you feel about you. We all feel that way, really, about ourselves. I can understand why, you know, Jeremy even ought to just be grateful to be here amongst us. But for me, I'm lucky. I mean, God's lucky to have me. That's how we see ourselves sometimes. It's ultimately humbling to realize that I don't complete God. Now, I'm grateful that he desires my uh, and we'll get to that in a little bit. I don't jump ahead of myself, but I'm grateful that he uses me, but he doesn't need me. In the absolute sense, God does not need anything or anyone. We must understand this. He did not create us because he was lonely. He did not save us because heaven was empty. He suffers no lack. He knows no limitation. He experiences no deficiency in his person or his character. He is the I am that I am with no exception or qualification. If he needed anything to stay alive or to feel complete, he would not be God. But he is God, and he does not need those things. Uh, When the Pharisees told Jesus, you remember this, when Jesus was riding in, we call it the uh, Palm Sunday, he was riding in on that uh, donkey, and the people were waving palm branches, and the Pharisees came to Jesus, tell your people to hush up. And you know what Jesus' response was? This is what he said in Luke 19.40. I tell you that if they should hold their peace, the stones would immediately cry out. If he wants to, God can cause the trees to clap their hands. If he wants to, he can cause the stones to cry out and sing his praises. He can do all those things. He does not need anything or anyone completely. Now with all that in mind, amazingly, he's still chosen. Isn't that a wonderful thing? That's exciting. Because we understand it is his love, His grace and His mercy. He loves us so passionately that He wants us to live with Him forever.
2,000 years ago, God put human skin on Himself in the form of His Son. And He came to earth, walked in our shoes for 33 years, and died an undeserved criminal's death, taking our sin on His shoulders. He gave His very life to atone for our sin, to prove His deep love for us. He paid the ultimate price to reconcile us to Himself. Nobody pays that kind of price for anything they don't value. Amen? He values us. The point of the message tonight is to destroy all human pride and leave us laying in the dust. That's where we need to be. We have to come to the point where we realize there is nothing good in me that God needs to accomplish His purposes. Apart from God's kindness, His mercy, and His grace, there is no reason for Him to use us at all. But He does use us nonetheless. Hallelujah. He does love us anyway. And He does provide a way for salvation because He is God. Hallelujah. Let's look then at our response. As we consider this truth of God's freedom, we can of course put many applications to it, but we ought to, it ought to lead us to a calm confidence in God in the midst of tragedy. It should make us bold in our witness. It should make us strong in our prayers. We can persevere knowing that even in our foolishness, we cannot cancel out God's plan for us because it doesn't depend on us. Isn't that a wonderful thing? Kind of takes pressure off, doesn't it? Oh, but pastor, I fail so often. Yes, yeah. We are failing creatures. We didn't earn it in the first place. He gave it to us, salvation to us in His grace. We can reject this first law. God is God and we are not. We can reject it and decide to fight against it. But that rebellion leads to anger, bitterness, despair, and eventually a very hard heart. Have you ever chosen this path? I think we all have at times. We're sinners. So at some point we have made the decision, maybe not said it in our minds or said it verbally so uh, so plainly, but we've made the choice in our life, well, God, today you're not God, I am, and I'm going to make some choices for me that con- contradict what you have for me. And so we step into His role and we make those choices. Now, if we do that too often in our life, it's going to lead to a very hard and bitter heart. Some people do this and end up dropping out of church altogether because they get so angry. Some people who choose this path choose to stay in church and they pray the prayers, they go through the motions, they come to church on Sunday, they sing the hymns, but inside they're very angry Christians because they are constantly trying to usurp the authority of God in their life. They're trying to get up into His throne. My throne at home is my easy chair. That's my throne. You don't sit. No, my kids don't sit in my easy chair. Once in a while, I come and walk in the room and this is the this is the most horrible thing, Well, when there's a cat in it. I mean, of all things, there's no cat allowed my easy chair. That's my throne. And so, if a child crawls up into my throne, when I walk in the room, they have to exit the throne because now I sit in there, okay? And uh, that's my chair. Well, we often do that with God's chair. We're trying to get in His chair. We don't need to get in His chair. That's His chair. He is to be on the throne of our hearts, not us. How often we try to overtake those folks that do that. Hopefully, you are not one, but those that uh, go through the motions, but in their hearts, they're on the throne. They're taking God's place as the God of their life. They have the attitude spoken about in Proverbs 18, 14, the spirit of man will sustain his infirmity, but a wounded spirit who can bear. It's very difficult to help a person like that unless there's a heart change. But there's another choice we can make. We can accept the first law as true, and we can submit ourselves to God, realizing He is God and we are not. If we acknowledge that He is free to do whatever He wants to do, 
that submission leads us to a joyful praise, a joyful spirit in our heart, in our life. The truth of God's sovereignty ought to lead us to a place of praise and worship. It's not that we praise God directly for the pain and sadness that's around us. We don't have to praise God for the sinful acts of others. But we praise God that He is able to work in and through us despite our failures and our problems. Praise the Lord for that. We have to remember, we didn't earn God's love for us. We didn't earn our salvation. So let's not think that we have to live on a certain level to maintain the relationship that we have with God. It is grace, pure and simple. He doesn't need us, but He chooses. Praise the Lord. We've read stories, maybe there's some in here that have uh, been involved in either receiving and or <coughs> adopting, but I always think those stories of adoption are so precious. My parents adopted two children after we all moved out of the house. We were such good kids, they missed us so much, they adopted more when we left the home. And uh, there's really no greater, no greater selflessness than adopting a child. And then you've all heard that cliche phrase when a child finds out they're adopted or is having a hard time dealing with their adoption uh, and that uh, adopted parent tells them, hey, uh, some people have to take whatever God gives them. I chose and God chose us. We are his adopted children. We, the Bible talks about us being adopted into his family. He loves you and chose you. And, and the fact of his sovereignty ought to lead us to praise him all the more for this. Because he's God. He doesn't need me. And yet he chooses me. And he uses me. Undeserving as I am. And he'll still use me. What a blessing. It gives us a true understanding of Romans 8.28. We know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them that are called according to His purpose, because the good and the bad in our life, He puts in there to accomplish His will to make us more like Christ. When we submit ourselves to our Heavenly Father, when we finally come to the point in our life where we say, Lord, I get it. I understand it. I accept it. You are God and I am not. When we get to that point in our life, then and only then do we discover truth. Jesus said it in John 8.32, And ye shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. Our basic problem is, in our life, we have allowed God to be everywhere but on His throne. But in our heart and life, He needs to be on the throne. That is why we're unhappy. That's why we're frustrated. That's why we're unfulfilled. We wonder why life doesn't work right. Because we're not allowing Him His proper place in our life. He needs to be in the driver's seat. I have seen the bumper sticker, God is my co-pilot. Have you ever seen that bumper sticker before? If God is your po- ah, can't say it. If God is your co-pilot, you're in the wrong seat. He's be your pilot. Not you, you just need to let him take it and control your life. The Bible says in Psalm 95, 6, and we need to have this attitude, Oh, come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord our Maker. The Bible says in Philippians 2, 10, that there is coming a day when every knee should bow of things in heaven, things in earth, and things under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Why not, friend? Why not? Why not us get a head start on it? Why not us bow our knees today and say, God, you are Lord. I am not. And accept that. It takes all kinds of pressure off of our life if we recognize it is in His hands and we trust Him. And we recognize who is in control of all of it. The sovereignty of God is one of the greatest truths in the Bible. Why not say that today? And I want to close our service even this evening with all of us agreeing with the statement made in Isaiah chapter 45, verse 5. 
I am the Lord. There is none else. Not you, 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 or me. There's only one Lord. He is God. I am. Father, we pray you help this very elementary truth. But I think if we.